So we turn to, ver- to chapter 9 today now uh, to, to read it. And let us, uh, let us open our Bibles. Let us meditate upon this as we read. Amos wrote, under the inspiration of the Lord, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds might shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take shall take them. Though they climb up into heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and I shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? O oh, children of Israel, says the Lord. Do I, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kephor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, for surely I will command... <coughs> And I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. As grain is sifted in a sea of sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, The calamity shall not overtake or nor confront us. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. May uh, his blessing rest upon us in peace as we consider this passage. We see the general outline of this text today before us is divided in two. The first half talks about God's wrath, God's judgment falling upon the nation. The second half talks about the fact that he will not, he will not be exhaustive 
in his in the application of his wrath, but there shall be a measure to it or a limitation to it. And indeed, he shall save the elect from out of Israel. There shall be out of this nation, there shall be a spiritual people that will be raised up. And so he develops both of these, both of these, both of these truths with a great deal of power, many picturesque images and metaphors. And the question is, when he talks about wrath, why are why were the people of Israel in that day not more scared? Many many said, as we see at the end of this passage, many many said uh, there there will be nothing that will happen to us. There will be, be nothing that comes to us because we are the children of Abraham, like we've been studying. In, in our church history class after the service, they just had this presumption that was not based on revelation. It was based on the general grace of God that he'd given before. But why Why did the people not respond? Why did they not wake up? Why did they not challenge themselves to, to, uh, to attention when God was so serious and so sober when he spoke to him them in these images? And then likewise, at the end, when he says that he would not utterly destroy them, but he would raise up a remnant, he would raise up a people out of them that he would he called the, the, the Jacob within Israel, the nation state. Why did they not? Why were they not so um, overwhelmed by the grace of God that this brought them out of their sinful stupor, which drove them to develop more and more iniquity? around themselves. Why? Why do we not, why are we not cognizant of the great themes of God, whether it be his wrath uh, or um, his, um, uh, the, the fear that he challenges us to have or the faith that he invites us to? Why don't we fear and why don't we develop a ready and winsome faith in our hearts? Uh, such are the difficulties of the human being. Now, we notice how this passage starts out. We know how we notice how God begins to deal with this subject, uh, because Amos says, "I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and He said." This was a very intimate prophecy that God gave Amos. He showed Himself. He manifested His power in the in the temple and the holy of holies by the by the head altar where. The sacrifice was made for them morning and night, but it was from the altar of mercy, it was from the altar of grace that God speaks this prophecy of wrath and judgment. And so you get a, a contrast here uh, uh, that, uh, that is surely, surely as dramatic as God intended it, that it would catch the people's attention. It was like, it was like uh, God was using the altar of the Old Testament as his pulpit. He was speaking from that place of forgiveness and that place of reconciliation. He was speaking from that pulpit this message of condemnation and judgment and inability to escape. The, the image of that, preaching from the altar, is just overwhelming to me. But that's how he starts this passage, uh, this closing of the prophet uh, Amos. God gave Amos this simple herdsman, uh, this simple uh, fig grower. God gives him such commanding pictures and images 
of the powerful things that were swirling around Israel at that time. This was not a man of great sophistication like Isaiah. This was more a man like John the Baptist, who was a, a, vo a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so Amos began to preach. Now from, from the altar, he says, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with a sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. I couldn't help but think here of this the image of Samson and the bringing down of the Philistine temple, which we've been studying after for our church history class here. And uh, it's been a, it's been a great class. We've been learning learning a lot, and uh, we saw how Samson was used by God in an earlier generation because Samson's crushing the Philistines. Uh, happened uh, uh, long before the prophecy of Amos in the days of the judges. But we remember how Samson, though he was given over to so much sin in his life, at the end of it he was chained to the pillars in the, the Philistine temple and how God gave him the superwhelming, overwhelming strength to, to tug on the central pillars and uh, the temples were constructed in that day with these central points where the central pillars were the biggest and the most stout and strongest. And so all the, 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 the uh, geometry, the architecture of the building all leaned on these main pillars that were in the middle. And so when Samson pulled them down, the building collapsed upon all the worshipers. These people who had worshipped for years with utter indifference toward the Lord, all of a sudden their worship place became a place of condemnation and consummation. It consumed them by the, the weight of the stones that came down upon them. And we know that the, the aristocracy of Philistia were destroyed on that day. Well, God, uh, God spuses an image like that, and I, I don't know why the people of that day wouldn't think of Samson when Amos spoke, but God says regarding this that just like with the Philistines, that, that no one would escape from this, that though you would run, you wouldn't escape, um, though, uh, you, though you escaped momentarily from the building, uh, that would get you later somehow. We know how 9-11, uh, people that escaped from the towers died within months or some short years later because of the contamination of the dust you know, which their lungs took in. And so whatever, however God ordained this, we know that this was his message. Now he develops this idea of an inability to escape his wrath in the passages before us, the next few passages. He says in verse 2, though they dig into hell, you can imagine trying people trying to tunnel down and even today if you knew that there was a large enemy force coming, you might think one of the one of the first things we think of is, well, can I dig? In a, could I dig into the ground in such a way that I can hide myself and obscure myself from the prying eyes of the enemy? Do you not think that this was done in in the in the past conflicts of this world, whether it was the conflicts that shrank before the Mongol hordes or? 
the Russians as the Germans came into Russia or the Germans as the Russians came into Germany. Do you not think that this was part of the idea? People would hide in their basements. They would cover themselves. They would do anything they could to avoid being seen. But God says here, that won't help you. Though you dug down as deep as hell, you could not escape my vision, people of Israel. And then he says, and halfway through verse 2, he says, though they might climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on top of Mount Carmel, I will find them there. That's another thing. People think, well, the armies are down below. I, I'll, I'll, I'll ascend. I'll find a place high above where they won't want to expend their energy to climb up that big hill or that big mountain. I will, I will find a place to hide on the mountains, in the caves, uh, in the high places. But God says, no, that won't work for you either. He says in the end of verse 3, though they would hide in my sight at the bottom of the sea. Now, there were no submarines in this day. The Israelites didn't know anything about building a submarine or inhabiting a submarine or going under the sea in this way. They might, like the people of Hawaii, try to flee the flames by jumping into the the Pacific Ocean out there around Hawaii. And there were some people that were saved by that, but God says, no, it will not be like that. You, you, may, you cannot use the sea to hide yourself or to escape the wrath which is to come. He said, if you, even if you went to the bottom of the sea, I would send one of my serpents there and he would bite you. He would consume you there. Such is the, such is the, uh, the stopless energy and, and, and uh, enmity of the Lord against all that rises up against him. Verse 4 says, though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword. Now see, some people in politics and in warfare they, they think, well, the, the way to survive is to surrender. If we surrender before the enemy, then we will, the enemy, we will exhaust the enemy's wrath upon us and by surrendering, by giving up the enemy will be uh, assuaged. Uh, but there are many illustrations from history. We know Attila the Hun was a, a, a vicious warlord. And one of the things that he would do when a city did surrender, he would kill everybody in it. He would massacre everyone that was there as a, as a lesson for other cities. So he, he thought nothing about the city that he, was, he had surrounded and was attacking. He thought nothing of those who would surrender because of the basic animus of his heart. He wanted this to be a lesson for other cities. So they would just surrender without putting up any kind of fight at all. So they just lay down before him and his might and his power so that it wouldn't cost him anything militarily to be the master of these distant places uh, over which his hordes swept and so God trades on that image, though. They hear, though they though they surrender, uh, from there I will command the sword. He says. I remember during the days of Jeremiah and Isaiah, there were many people that uh, that uh, remonstrated and resisted the preaching of Jeremiah and Isaiah, with the idea that they, that because Jeremiah and Isaiah were telling them, um, this was under God's command, telling them to surrender. Don't fight. Don't resist this because God's judgment is irresistible. Just like his grace on the, on the positive side of the gospel. 
And so uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah, they challenged the people not to, not to resist the Babylonians, but to give up. But of course, the people didn't do it then. They, didn't, uh, they, they, they kept resisting. And so they, it raised the anger of their assaulting forces. And so in this case, now, there was no chance to surrender then at the end because uh, they, they devastated the people of Israel with their anger. So God says that whatever you do, whatever comes into your mind to escape my wrath, it shall not work. Now, when, when Jesus was preaching to his people Israel a thousand years later, and, um, uh, and telling them that God was ripping up the covenant with them, that the nation state of Israel would be no more, he says, I, I would have come to you like a, like a mother hen to her chicks, but you refused me. You would not have me. And so he said, he says then that those awful words, you let your house be left to you desolate. Might there be a devastation upon you? When Jesus says that, was he not thinking about these earlier prophets like Amos who came before that were announcing the wrath of God and the judgment of God, that it was going to be so thorough and so consuming? Uh, Amos then, in verse 5, wants the people to know that it's the Lord God who does these things. He says, uh, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. He begins to rehearse the powers of God, the attributes of God. He who touches the earth and it melts, uh, and all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall swell like the river or the flood and subside like the river of Egypt. Uh, again, probably like the Red Sea, the, the flood of waters that buried the Egyptians in the Red Sea. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Jehovah is his name. And so God, Amos, wanted the people of Israel to know that this was personal between God and them. It's the Lord that has brought this judgment. It was not, the, it was not a vague virus or it was not um, a, a vague storm or something like that, unnamed, unconnected, or disconnected with God. No, this was the Lord that brought these things to pass. Uh, this is the same Lord that created the earth, earth, who could destroy the earth with a blast of his lightning and um, appeared with almost limitless powers. This was the Lord who had done these things. And uh, at the end of verse 6, he refers to a kind of image that we would remember in Noah. It says, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. And so then the Lord, then Amos transitions, begins the transition into uh, this word of grace or announcement of grace, verse 7. He says, Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kephor, and the Syrians from Kerr? He began, the Lord begins to talk about these other peoples of the earth, the other nations of the earth. And what he, he's doing here is he's making Israel as a nation state a, a, um, an equality with these other nations. Uh, Israel tended to uh, impute this virtue and this value to itself because of God's past grace. But God is saying, outside of that grace, you're just like another part of the creation, other, the other part of mankind, another part of the family of man that came out of the flood 
of the Noahic flood. Where do you, why do you think that you're so special when you move away from me and my grace? And so he equivocates them with the people of Ethiopia and the people of Egypt and the people of Philistia and the Syrians. <laughs> and then he, then he touches uh, upon an image that he used earlier in verse 4. He begins to speak about his eyes. He says, Behold, the eyes of God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So he, speak, he begins speaking, he uses the metaphor of the eyes. Now he used that before at the end of verse 4. He says, I will, he, there he said, I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Now every child knows that it's a wise thing to pay attention to the eyes of their parents. If you do something wrong and you inspire the fierce anger of your parents, you either see it or you either hear it from their voice or you'll see it in their eyes. And most children uh, don't want to see that because they, when they see the animus or the power in the eyes, it reminds them of how their parents are coming after them, how they are really in trouble. Uh, when I was a young boy went to a lecture on Alaska by a naturalist that was there and he brought uh, he was wearing a big a real big pistol on his side I don't know some 45 caliber pistol it was a big one looked like an elephant gun to us and uh, and uh, he said you might wonder why I've brought this he said because in Alaska when you go out at night in the winter you have to you he said wolves do not often attack you but he said they're almost always there and uh, you can you can hear them and he said sometimes you can see you know, the uh, any any ambient light will catch their eyes and he said when you see the eyes of the wild animals that are fearsome and you know that they're struggling to stay alive you know that they need food when you see the eyes of the wolf pack focused on you only 10, 15, 20 feet away in the trees or in the grasses. You're glad to have a pistol on your hip that you know you might need to defend yourself. It's a fearsome thing. The eye is like a prophet, if you will. The eye communicates so well. Uh, I'm sure that none of us are real experts on the eye and its formations. How can you separate one eye from another? But we can. We know we know the eye of love, and we know the eye of anger. So here God uses this powerful metaphor. Who would like to be on the cold steps of Alaska, walking through a pine grove, and you think you hear something just off, out of sight in the darkness, and then some moonlight catches sets of eyes that are there, and you know that these wolves are hungry, and they're driven by hunger. They want to consume you. You are the living prey. How many of us would not get a little bit queasy at that moment? Now, here, God doesn't trade on the eyes of the animal world, but he trades, he uses that image to refer to himself. In verse 4, he said, um, 
I will set my eyes on them for harm. So all of these things I've said about the eyes, you can imagine these eyes looking upon the people of Israel. But they're not the they're not animal eyes, they're the divine eyes of God. These eyes are not animated by mere hunger. These eyes are animated by a hunger for holiness. And there's no there's no shadow of sin in these eyes. There's no shadow of weakness in these eyes. There's no shadow or no part of weakness or imperfection in these eyes. That's the terrifying dimension of the eyes of the Lord because they are all good. They are they have all of the attributes of God, all of his goodness, all of his holiness, all of his purity. But they also have all of his power. God's knowledge is unsearchable. There are many people who think that they can come before the Lord in judgment and somehow persuade the Lord that they're really better than they are, that they're not really worthy of God's judgment. But they face the inscrutable wisdom of God. They face the omniscience of God. He knows everything. And everywhere we would bring forth some jewel of virtue to show the Lord, the Lord would show us the plasticity, the, 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 fa- the falseness the lack of genuineness in that jewel. And so this is what animates the eyes of the Lord, and it ought to terrify us. People don't want to hear these things today. They don't want to hear about the power of God. They don't want to hear that he really judges evil. I hear this all the time when I'm dealing with the world in the hospital or the chaplain. People have no comprehension of who they really are or who God is. They just have this easy, easy believism that just uh, serves and, and focuses upon their own selfishness, their own way of thinking, their own way of living, their own manner of philosophizing about life. But these things are not the way they want them to be. The, the things of life, the truths of life, are the way God has decreed that they are. And we we hide from or or dismiss these things to our hurt and to our danger because God is real and the things of the Lord are real and these things will come to pass. And so God uses in verse 4 and then verse again in verse 8, he uses this this picture of the eyes of the Lord. Uh, The first time he uses it, in a totally negative way for destruction. In verse 8, he moves. He says in the end of verse 8, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Now, you know, you notice here he contrasts early in verse 8, the sinful kingdom now with the house of Jacob. When he speaks of the sinful kingdom, there's nothing personal about that. There's nothing to temper his wrath, the sinful kingdom. It stands against God and it must be crushed. It must be vitiated. It must be destroyed. But then when he says, Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, he speaks of one whom he loved. He speaks of Jacob and Esau, Jacob the son uh, of Isaac whom he loved. Jacob who did many things wrong, but whom God uh, covered for, like he covers for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the very mention of the name Jacob reminds us of God's love and God's kindness and how that's different from his speaking generally about a a sinful kingdom, our sinful kingdom, 
or the, the sinful lives of the reprobate. He looks upon us differently. Why does he do that? It's not because that we have done anything especially virtuous, says the book of Romans. It's not because we have done anything, but it's because of him for some uh, inexplicable divine reason out of himself because of what he has ordained. He will cast a loving an affectionate eye upon his people. And that's that's that of which uh, uh, Amos here speaks. For he says in verse 9, For surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve. And here he's speaking of the elect. He says, Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Do you feel like you have no virtue at all? Do you feel like you have no, uh, no manner of arguing for God's love in your life. As you look at your life, do you see for yourself as you are, and you see that there is no virtue in you, and there is no reason, there is no redemptive reason in you uh, to be saved. Well, God says, not even the smallest grain of this kind of thought shall fall to the ground. Um, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, the calamity shall not overtake or confront us, But on that day, verse 11, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has been fallen down. Now, he began this prophetic message speaking from the altar, using the altar as his pulpit. And he returns to the temple, to the tabernacle, and he says, On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. This is good news, brothers and sisters. It delves into the Old Testament. It delves into the the tabernacle of David, and then ultimately it was built into the temple of David. And so the Lord is using this image of building something out of the tabernacle, just as in the New Testament. He builds uh, out of the tabernacle of David in the New Testament, he builds a new temple of God's people uh, that will serve him with gladness forever. And so Amos here is trading on this future picture of a new, the new Israel. Uh, Romans speaks of the Israel within Israel. He says that, that there, there, is a, there is an Israel within Israel that not all Israel will be lost, Romans 9. And he says that he will raise up uh, a new Israel based upon his divine election, and that shall be for the salvation of many. He says, I will raise up, verse 11, the end of that, I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles were called by my name. So he's not speaking here just of Israel, because remember, uh, Amos begins by saying that the nation of Israel will be destroyed. But individual Israelites will be raised up. They are the elect. They are they're not the mass, they're not the people who were in covenant with God and who blew that opportunity by transgressing the covenant. These are people like Mary and Joseph, like John the Baptist, Sarah, Elizabeth. These are people who are the humble of the Old Testament. They will be raised up. And among those people are also the Gentiles like ourselves here in southwest Ohio. God saw us from afar. He knew that he would raise us up. He knew that after Israel turned his back on him, that he would go beyond the boundaries of Israel uh, of old and, and, and build a new Israel that included Gentiles 
and the Edomites and the Egyptians and people from all the different tribes and nations of the world, all the all the shields of the nations, he says, will honor him. All tongues shall confess and all knees shall bow before the living God. So he uses these more images here of good coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, um, not the person who uh, who levels the the, the, the fields or uh, tries to reap what he could of, uh, at the end of the season. But now the, the plowman who getting ready for the new season and the new growth, he shall come upon the scene and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel, says the Lord. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruits from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord God. Now, just incidentally, in this last passage here, is a real uh, is a real death knell to those that say that all... Uh, all alcoholic beverages or all drink is bad. Why, if, if, all, if all alcohol is bad, why does God use these as positive images for the future? He does the same thing in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 26. Speaks of the, the, the wine and the well-distilled wine uh, of heaven. Blessing the people. Well, that's just the incidental teaching, but the bigger teaching is that God will bring blessings on his people. We cannot be so forlorn today. We cannot be so cast down. We cannot be so pessimistic about the strength of paganism that we are undone and we say, well, the church has no hope. We should just keep a low profile. No, the Lord would say, uh, I'm raising up the profile of Israel and I will do that at the last day. No matter how much evil there exists in the world, no matter how much the tides of Satan flow against the tides of righteousness, Stand with me, stand, raise the flags of Israel, raise up the flags of David, understand your history, understand who I am, the Lord God. Satan is just a created thing. He has no power before the living God. And so it is here that he addresses the people and calls them to attention. Now, the wonderful thing here is that God did this. God put all of this in writing. God wants, God wants us to see his, the display of his wrath and the announcement of his, of his promise, of his blessing. He wants us to see that, but he wants us to pay attention to it. He, it's in writing. We, we have this phrase, uh, put it in writing, to indicate that we inscribe our sentiments upon paper. That it's not just something we say, but it's there on paper. It's something that we do. It's something that is really there and it's going to come to pass. We're going to execute this contract. We're going to buy this property. We're going to buy these goods and services, whatever they are, because it's in writing. And so God wants the, wanted the Israelites to know that this was a part of his short promise. Now, the, the fullest and the most poignant way in which he brings this promise to pass is with the coming of his son, with the coming of his only begotten uh, son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, all of these blessings materialized. There was nothing hurled at the Son that the Son could not overturn and metamorphosize into something that would be blessed. And so these words of Amos 
coming centuries before the coming of Christ were uh, both a warning and uh, a promise to the people. Why, why do we not pay attention to these things that were written down? God intended them to be significant. He wrote them down. He called a man who had not gone to seminary, who was not a sophisticated man. He called a man like Amos to prophesy these things. Why, why do we not take it seriously? We, why do we not understand what God has done? Probably because there's a famine of the hearing of the word of God, like there was in Amos' day, because the people of God had become so callous to the great things of God, whether his nature or his name. We have another name today, brothers and sisters, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be encouraged by him. He comes to animate all of these promises. He, come, he came to secure them. By what he did, they are no longer in the balance. There's no possibility of them not coming to pass. God has declared his holy decree, as he says in Psalm 2. And these things shall come to pass. So we, let us, be witnesses in our day, in places like China, places like America, great powers that would persecute people for having any other sovereign than whomever they put forth than from their dark, smoke-filled rooms. But let us be happy and glad because we have uh, a valiant warrior who's gone before us, even the Lamb from whose mouth we see a mighty sword slaying all that lay before him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might be glad for this prophecy of Amos, all that he has brought us. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou raised up this common man and that his powerful preaching undid the priests of Jerusalem, the, the priests of Samaria, especially in his day. And they, they could not stand before his preaching. They, they did what they could, but ultimately they had to bring uh, uh, lies and untruths. They had to bring their, uh, their, their secret things against him, their, their uh, tyrannies, and uh, uh, that then they might drive him from their land. But the words of Amos stood, and Israel was destroyed. As a, as a nation. Its people were destroyed from history. They were erased from history, just like Amos said that they would be. Help us, O oh Lord, to not have this kind of mindless attitude about our day and about the, the goodness and the truths of God in our day. Help us to be both afraid of thy fear and of thy wrath and help us to run to thy faith, the strength of thy faith, even the righteousness of God, which is the foundation of our adequacy. Bless us, O oh God, in his name we pray. Amen.